Amen. Wonderful. Good. Looking forward to next week. Um, Pastor Lynn is going to be preaching for us for a couple of weeks, and um, uh, certainly looking forward to that. I just want to make a slight correction to his prayer request. Uh, we need to take very serious uh, the fact that Lynn needs prayer uh, because, not because of his ability, but because of his task. Uh, I told him anytime you preach on family, marriage, uh, family, and and, and, and those kinds of issues, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's some serious warfare coming your way. So uh, we, need to pr- we, need to, we need to really uh, support him in prayer. And so uh, we really need to do that uh, for him. We need to really support him, lift up his arms, uh, and strengthen him through our prayers. And so uh, I hope that we will do that. And I look forward to that time. A very much needed uh, series of messages that he's going to give us. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, All right, well, why don't we pray one more time and ask God to bless us as we look at His Word today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much, Lord. We we can come before You now and ask for Your help and Your strength and Your comfort. Lord, um, the Word we're looking at today is so necessary. We are all in need of Your encouragement. That is what the word comfort is all about. And we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, supernaturally, that you would comfort our hearts, and practically, that you would use the means of grace and the stimulation that we get from one another, the fellowship of one another, to strengthen the brethren, to comfort one another in the faith, in our journey, in our walk. We so desperately need it, Lord. I can think of all so many things even within our church, so many needs, so many, so many heartaches, so many trials, so many opportunities for encouragement. And may we be an encouraging people. May we be like our God. May we be like you and encourage one another and be the lifter of one another's head. And that's what the body of Christ is really all about. So would you help us, Lord, to be the body Would you help us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus as we encourage one another in the faith? And Father, we pray that you would protect us from discouragement. We know that the enemy is constantly going around, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And discouragement is one of the key tactics of the enemy. And so we pray that you would help us to vanquish him and to overcome our enemy, through doing good. We thank you. We ask your help now. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to a very uh, convenient location in the text as we're finishing up. Uh, Chapter 2 seems like a good place to take a little bit of a break before we resume our exposition through this book in chapter 3. But we come to a something of of a prayer uh, on behalf of the Apostle Paul uh, for this church. Uh, It is a prayer that the Lord would comfort the church, and in comforting the church, that the church would then reciprocate that comfort and sort of uh, move forward in that comfort and strength and uh, practically serve and practically bear fruit and be productive in the strength that the Lord supplies. Uh, But um, this is Paul's prayer uh, for the church, and it all revolves around this notion of comfort. And so I want 
point out four different aspects of this comfort. The fact that it is triune, meaning Trinitarian. The fact that it is eschatological. The fact that it is intimate. And the fact that it is productive. The fact that it is productive. Now, um, needless to say, when we say comfort in Scripture here, uh, parakalysis, this word is really speaking about encouragement. Uh, that's what is behind the comfort that the text here in the NASB uh, is talking about. There's just the idea of needing uh, encouragement because discouragement can come in so many different ways. And so I think many believers make the mistake that as you become a Christian, life is going to become automatically a lot easier and therefore you should experience a lot of a lot less discomfort in your life. When in reality, if we've learned anything from Jesus' parable of the sower, it's that in fact, when you become a Christian, your life may actually become more uncomfortable and at times even very discouraging uh, because of the word, as he says there, but ultimately, too, just simply because we live in a sin-laden world, uh, this sinful world uh, is cursed, and because it is cursed, it is full of suffering, it is full of affliction, it is full of discouragement, and therefore, comfort and encouragement is at times hard to find. It becomes a very precious commodity Uh, for our own lives. And so overall, I think what the Apostle Paul wants to do here is to strike a tone of encouragement, even within the context in which he is talking about. Of course, discouragement, brothers and sisters, is something that all of us here can identify with. It is not difficult to form a small group around the topic of discouragement. We can all just sort of Uh, divulge all of our discouraging points in life. And there's a lot in life to discourage us. I mean, just think about it. Beginning, going no further than yourself, right? Uh, Going no further than your own heart, your own sinfulness. It is very easy on the basis of of your own corruption and your own depravity to become discouraged. Um, in, In addition to that, it's not just personal discouragement, but There's also discouragement with our closest relationships, familial discouragement in the home, marital discouragement, parental discouragement. I mean, the list goes on and on. Discouraged in your trials, discouraged in your job, discouraged in your ministry. So there is pastoral discouragement. There is social discouragement, discouragement as you look out at the culture and what's going on. It's very easy to get depressed It's very easy to become downcast and discouraged, whether it's physically, whether it's mentally, whether it's uh, emotionally, whatever. Discouragement can come in all sorts of different ways. I mean, this week was just an awful week for me. I don't know about you, not to get into all the details, but just a, a lot of discouraging, a lot of waves of discouragement. I mean, yesterday I was late to a wedding, for crying out loud, where I was supposed to share the gospel and I couldn't pull myself out of the discouragement of that, uh, just feeling like, uh, you know, like a total failure. Uh, and I know the truth. I know that God is gracious and there's con- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I tell you, if you're a pastor and you don't show up to preach the gospel, you are condemned. <laughs> okay. It's like you only got one job in this world, man. And you couldn't even do it, you know. But you guys know whether it's that, whether it's other things, Life can be very discouraging. I remember sitting outside of the door 
the door of a good friend of mine sitting outside of the door of his dorm at seminary because he had shut himself in for days and was discouraged to the point that I had to gather some of his closest friends and we, we conspired against him and we knocked on that door and t- trying to pry this guy out of his darkness. He was just discouraged, just depressed about who he was and where he was at in life and the, just the trials that, and the discouragement and the failures and, the, and, and just, you know, the regrets that he has. And, and it's very easy to become discouraged. And I tell you, it took every fiber of our strength to pull him out of that, you know. And you can see that uh, all over the place. The body of Christ gets bombarded with discouragement, and it's something that happens all the time. But let's unpack this a little bit. If Paul here is talking about encouraging us in the Lord, how does it do it? And what, what does it consist of? How does it work? I have, like I said, I've got four points. And the first point is a high theological point. And that is that encouragement, biblical encouragement, the kind of encouragement that Paul is talking about is first and foremost triune. It is triune. Why? Because look at the text. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. May he what? Well, actually, the the, the thought resumes in verse 17. May the triune God, in other words, verse 17, comfort and strengthen you. So everything in between is sort of parenthetical. And so may the triune God who has done X, Y, and Z, may He comfort and strengthen you. You see that there? And so it begins with knowing who it is that is comforting us. It is, no, it is none other than the triune God of Scripture. And you say, well, I see the Son, I see the Father, but where is the Spirit? Now, we'll get there, okay? We'll get there. But first, think of the Son and His comfort to us. His comfort is rooted in His redemptive work, in redeeming us from our sin, His personal presence among us in His communion uh, with the saints. Jesus' role in comforting us is also seen in the context here. If you just look at the chapter, I mean, after all, this is spoken within the context of eschatology, and that's why one of the topics we're going to hit here is the eschatological comfort of God. But eschatologically, go back to verse 1, we are comforted by Jesus by the mere notion that He is coming back for us. Jesus is coming for us. That should be a comfort to you. Verse 1, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So how are we comforted by Christ? Well, He's coming back and He's going to gather us to Himself. That should be immensely comforting to us. You remember the disciples there on the day that He ascended to heaven? There they stood on the hill gazing into heaven with their eyes gazing up to the Lord as He ascended. And it was the angels that comforted them and said, in the same way that you see Jesus being taken up from you, He will return to you. What a comfort to know that He's coming back. Oh, brothers and sisters. When you look out at the world and what's going on, the madness, the craziness, the absurdity of it all, the chaos, the depravity, the corruption, you just think, praise God, Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, verse 8, 
He is not just coming back, and so we're comforted by his return, but we are also comforted by his victory. Because his victory is our victory. He's coming back to do what? Verse 8, he, he says, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord, that's Jesus, will slay with the breath of his mouth. How do you know that for certain that it's Jesus? Because it says, And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And so by the coming of Christ also implies that our enemy will be defeated. What a great comfort that is. Uh, What a great comfort that is. Not only that, brothers and sisters, we are comforted even beyond that, beyond the fact he's coming back, beyond the fact he's gathering us to himself, beyond the fact that he's going to destroy our enemies, beyond the fact of that, there's also verse 14, we will gain his glory. So in terms of this triune comfort right here taken from the text, the Son comforts us by the mere fact that we will be fellow heirs with him in his kingdom what about the father the father is also the source of the believer's comfort because number one he is our father that should be enough should be enough that if we understand that god is our father he is our abba he is our beloved father he is the father that cares for us takes care of us watches over us does not any does not allow anything to pry us out of his hand we are secured by the father and consequently we are comforted by the fact that it was the father who sent the son for us for our behalf turn with me in your bibles to second corinthians chapter 1 because as we capitalize on the father we are immediately brought to the realization that the father is actually and is uh, is described by and characterized by the very notion and attribute of comfort you remember second corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies the god of all comfort What this reminds us of, brothers and sisters, is that all true comfort and encouragement comes from Him. When all all human comforts fail us, when it seems as if no one can encourage us, the only place we can go, which is the only place we, we, which is the place we should go the most, is to come to the realization that all comfort resides in the Father. He comforts us in all of our affliction, all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He comforts us in order to instruct us how to comfort one another. And it says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Now this is leading to a point See how we began with the Father and we ended with the Son. But let me get back to that. Because even as God comforts us in, uh, uh, through Christ, the comfort of God is also through the Spirit who is Himself called the Comforter. John chapter 14, verse 16. He is the paraclete. He is the Comforter. He is the Advocate. He is the one that comes alongside of the believer to aid us. And the Spirit comforts us in John's gospel in a unique way because it's a, fili- it's a filial comfort, brothers and sisters. 
It is the reason why you and I are not estranged to God. It is the reason why you and I should never feel abandoned by God. It is the reason why you and I are not, uh, as Jesus even says in the passage here, we are not, John 14, verses 16 to 18, we are not left as orphans, but we are, because of our adoption, we are received into His presence because of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God comes to minister to us the very comfort of Christ, the very presence of Christ, and the very comfort of the Father it all works together. So that's what, it's, that's what this triune comfort is all about. It means basically, brothers and sisters, that you and I cannot contemplate the ministry of one without immediately being driven to the ministry of the three. As, as, you know, the moment we are contemplating the comfort of one member of the Godhead, it, 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 we immediately start spilling into the ministry of the other members of the Godhead so that finally and at last we contemplate the comfort of God the way that it is. It is triune. It is God as He is. And that's the only way that we can fully comprehensively understand God's comfort. It's through the divine nature of the triune God of Scripture. God comforts us, comforts us through the ministry of the entire Godhead. Such Theology, by the way, leads to salutations like this. First, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse fourteen: "The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, i.e., the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all." Amen. Because it is a triune God that we serve. But now, this comfort is also. Not only triune, I can spend all day there, trust me. But it is also eschatological. It is eschatological. First, it's eschatological because that's introduced in the letters. And these letters introduce a tension in the life of the believer. We are those who possess the hope of eternal life. And we have the reassurance that the day of the Lord will not overtake us like the rest of the world. But this hope is a a hope that sustains us here now in the inner Advent period. We are those, in other words, in Scripture that are waiting. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want to see this. Remember, this was exactly where the Thessalonians lived, and it's where we live. We live in this tension of this sort of inner Advent delay, meaning inner advent, the first advent of Christ, and the second advent of Christ. And as we await the second advent, we are in a period of waiting. And that's what Scripture says. First Thessalonians 1.9 says, For they themselves report about, uh, about us w- what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And now what? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. In light of this delay and the trials that come with it, what is needed, therefore, is encouragement because we are here. We are in this inner Advent period. We are awaiting the eschaton, and we are subjected to the present evil age, and therefore God comforts us in the meanwhile, by His grace and His Spirit. Secondly, though, notice also the profundity of this comfort. Look at the text. He comforts us, right? And He says, He loved us and has given us eternal comfort. 
So it's, it's eschatological because the comfort that he gives us is eternal. It is unending. It will carry us not only through this life, but on into the next. It is eternal comfort because it is actually, uh, not just because of its own power and potency, but also because it's profound in, in the sense because it's congruent with God's own nature, even as God himself is eternal in the truest sense of the word, having no beginning, having no end. The comfort that God gives us, gives his children, is unending. It flows from his own eternal being. This comfort is a divine gift, brothers and sisters. It is given to us. And so it is no surprise to see that this comfort is also joined to the grace of God. As God gives His people, people comfort, they are equally given hope that is good hope. And he says here, He has given us eternal comfort and good hope by His grace. And that's another reason why it is eschatological. It is eschatological because of the hope that He gives with it. Let me give you some texts on this exact thing right here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to this. I'm just going to rattle these off. You want to jot these down later. But these are immense gifts. You know, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, set your mind completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is how eschatologically minded we ought to be. I I mean, does that speak to us? Set your mind completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I tell you, we have a lot to grow in eschatology, and it's not trying to figure out dates and places. But it's to set our affections there, to set our hope there, to live with that eternal perspective. Same thing is being said here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. What about Titus chapter 2, verse 13? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. You see now why the hope is good? The hope is good because it's, you, can, you can bank on it. You can, you can, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reservation that's been made for you. And guess what? That deposit is imperishable. That truth, that reservation is undefiled. It will not fade away. In other words, undefiled, meaning this defiled world can't touch it. It's preserved. It's protected. It's 100% reserved and preserved for you in heaven. And when it says in heaven, it literally means in, to the place which you're going. What about 1 John chapter 3, verse 2? Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. This is also why, therefore, such hope must be distinguished as exclusively, discriminately Christian hope. Brothers and sisters, 
Paul is not trying to give the world practical lessons for good living, okay? He's not trying to give people a, a, a verse of the day as some sort of good luck charm on their way to work in traffic. That's not what he's doing here. This is not for the world. This is exclusively, distinctly Christian. And the world has no such hope. That's another reason why this hope is good. It's good because it is distinctly Christian hope. It is hope that is in Christ. That's what makes it true hope. Now, the world has a lot of hope in a lot of different things. It hopes in the economy. It hopes in health. It hopes in wealth. It hopes in family. It hopes in you know, uh, uh, world peace. It hopes in medicine. It hopes in doctors. It hopes in paychecks. But it is not ultimate. That hope will not sustain you. Only the Christian hope is truly good hope. And so here the Apostle Paul is not giving us some sort of generic principle of having hope. No. He doesn't want people to simply assimilate this theology into their worldview in some sort of moralistic fashion. No, not at all. It's only good because it's in Christ. It's only good because it's through the triune God who saved us through the gospel. That is why Peter can say this is a living hope. It is reserved for you. There's nothing worse than an unbeliever trying to simply integrate Christianity into their false spirituality leading to a false sense of hope and greater condemnation and greater confusion, ironically, about Christianity. I mean, how many times has that happened? Well, I tried it. I tried doing what it said. Right? It's like Christianity is not something you try. It's something you are. And that's what needs to happen in order for this hope to make any sense or to apply. But brothers and sisters, it's deeper than that. Notice also the intimacy of this comfort. So this comfort is also an intimate comfort. And um, I, I think, uh, you know, it can be said that universally believers experience trials and suffering and it would be a curse of 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 that would be that what trials and tribulations and suffering does to us is that it causes us to question it causes us to doubt the goodness and the love of god that's what trials do that's what that's the opposite of this comfort the opposite of this comfort is suffering don't forget the context of thessalonians here these are these are believers that are suffering. They're being persecuted. They are being ostracized from their community. They are suffering. And in that wilderness experience, the very first thing that tends to happen is that people tend to question, does God remember me? Does God really care? Remember the disciples in the boat, in the storm? Lord, wake up. Don't you care that we perish? I mean, what an emblematic truth for the whole Christian life. When we suffer, that is the first thing we are tempted to do is to question or doubt or undermine the goodness of our God. And uh, to back up a little bit in the context, God's comfort is intimately uh, something that we are intimately acquainted with. And there's two, two things here. There's the motive of this intimate comfort and there's the sphere of this intimate comfort. The motive of this intimate comfort, brothers and sisters, is love. Literally, look at what it says. He says that the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself 
who has loved us and given us eternal comfort. So, uh, actually, the construction there is a substantival participle. It literally means something like the one having loved us, the one loving us, in other words, is the way that he stresses this text. It is the, the deepest motive of the comfort and encouragement and strength of God is rooted in his love, and as we'll see, by his Grace, but also not just the motive of this comfort, but also the, the sphere also stresses the intimacy that God has with his people because he says, let his comfort be realized where he has loved us and he has strengthened us in our hearts or your hearts. That's where the comfort takes place. It takes place in our heart. Now, interestingly enough, the word hearts is standing in the place of the people. Because you could have expected him to say, he uh, comforted and strengthened you. But he says, he comforted and he strengthened your hearts. And so your heart means that he has strengthened us in our existential man, in our internal man, in our soul, in our very spirit. And Now to make it even a little bit more intimate, a little bit more intense, You can't see this in the English text, unfortunately, but you can see the word himself. You see that in verse 16? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But what you don't see is that in the Greek text, the sentence begins with the word himself. That doesn't make for good English grammar. (laughs) We don't write like that. Himself, he has strengthened you, unless you're, you know, Yoda or something. We don't talk like that in English, but in Greek, the writer under the inspiration of the Spirit, really wanted to emphasize the personal, intimate commitment of Christ to you. And so he begins by stressing the whole sentence and saying, Himself, He has strengthened, He has comforted, right? So He is personally invested in you. Brothers and sisters, don't don't lose touch of that in the dynamic of church life. Uh, I I think maybe uh, mega churches are at a little bit of a disadvantage at this point how many times how many times have you have i i have heard from people that have gone to a mega church i just got lost there i was just lost there's just too many people just felt like nobody knew me right i've heard that a million times don't get lost in the fact that in in the dynamics of the body that you personally are loved and known of god i remember the i remember the text in daniel that when God really hit me with this, I thought, wow, that's, that's an amazing revelation. There's Daniel. I think it's Daniel chapter... No, I won't even give it a try. Uh, maybe chapter 9. I don't know. But it's somewhere in Daniel <laughs> where Daniel is given this massive revelation by God. So massive, in fact, that he crumbled under it. He fell like a dead man. He was exhausted, weary. He was made weak through the revelation that, 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 that he was given, this vision that he was given. So, so much so that an angel had to approach him, put his hand on him, and say, Daniel, man, greatly beloved. And I thought, that's interesting. Because the angel is coming to Daniel from the realm of endless days. He has descended from the divine council of the tribunal of heaven to one guy. And he touches him and says, you are a man greatly beloved, Daniel. 
And I thought, that's amazing. What that means is that Daniel was conversation in heaven. God revealed to the angel that he loved Daniel. And I thought, that's exactly the way we need to look at our lives, is that he loves us. The Father loves us intimately. He himself has loved us in our heart. He has comforted us. And he has strengthened us. Isn't that remarkable? In the midst of all the innumerable multitude of his redeemed, he knows every single one of us by name. He has every single one of our hairs numbered. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember, he tells Jacob, tell Jacob that worm, (laughs) right, that I'm going to perform what I said I'm going to perform, right? It's like he knows, Jacob, you can scheme all you want. God's got your number. Sorry. It's because he knows he's intimately acquainted with us. I mean, we should just gawk at the grace of God, that he knows us who we are, he knows us as we are, and yet he still loves us. Marvelous grace. Untold grace. Untold grace, brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, the fact that God strengthens us in this way is so marvelous. It's, it's so glorious, and it's something that the Apostle Paul himself, he was acquainted with this. This is not some dry theologian, academic, sort of abstractly removed from the whole experience of discouragement. This is Paul the Apostle who knows it all too well and probably to a greater degree that we will ever know it. And he is the one assuring us of this very thing. Matter of fact, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 just to show you this. Remember this... um, Speaking of this comfort, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Uh, How about that, guys? I mean, completely weary because of missionary activity. He says, but we were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within, trapped in a prison of anxiety. Nowhere to go. He says, but God who comforts the depressed. Oh, I like that word. It's like finally a little human note for us to hold on to, right? Sometimes I think we can have this sensationalistic view of people like the Apostle Paul. He's sort of like a, he's sort of like a superhero, right, in our eyes. But we don't understand just how human he was. He says, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming Titus. So God is in the business of comforting those who are depressed. Have you ever been depressed? I've been depressed. Uh, I was so depressed once, but I was encouraged when I heard the testimony of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who in his pastoral endeavors was often so downcast, so depressed, uh, they said he would go into a bout of depression so severe that he, he couldn't pull out of it. There's nothing would pull him out of it. He would literally just lay his head on his wife's lap and just weep. And she would tell him, go and take a walk on the, uh, by the ocean. Maybe the ocean breeze will wake you up. You know, he's just in, gri- in the grip of depression for whatever reason. You never know when it's going to happen, brothers and sisters. I remember a good friend of mine they had their first baby. They were 
heavenly involved in the church. Uh, he was a graduate of seminary. They just seemed like a perfect couple. They just were on fire for the Lord. They had a baby. The mom struggled with, you know, um, after giving birth, you know, the depression. What's that called? I can't remember. It was so severe they had to take the baby away from her. She became not only depressed but dangerous. And we had never thought in a million years. I thought, these, these, I want to be like them. You know what I mean? And, 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 and shame on us whenever we don't have a human view of anybody. Right? Understand that we are but flesh, brothers and sisters. We are dust. That's what David says. says, oh, Lord, remember that I am but dust. God knows and understands our frailty. And he knows and he understands that we need encouragement constantly. We are in need of constant encouragement. I tell you what, weekly encouragement. Daily encouragement. And um, I don't know if you're married. Maybe you're not married. But I don't know if you're married to as encouraging as a person as I am married to. Trish leaves me little notes around the house, little hidden notes, and you know, she says, I would never do that. I feel like cold as ice. She leaves me little notes, encouraging me, telling me how, you know, how, um, okay, she doesn't have an uh, unrealistic view. She knows who I am. <laughs> okay, but she tries to encourage me, like, you did a great job, you know, this Sunday or something like that. We need that. I need that. And sometimes that helps me, lifts me up and encourages me and gets me back doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So important. What about practically? God pours out all this encouragement. If it comes from God, then it is divine. If it's divine, then it is spiritual. Then if it's spiritual, it is invisible. And if it's invisible, then it's hard for us to wrap our brain around. So practically speaking, how does this work? Look at verse 17. Because it comes to the final point, and that is that the comfort of God, when God comforts His people, this comfort is productive. This is crucial, absolutely crucial. Comforts us. He strengthens us in every good work and word. That's interesting. It's maybe not what you expected, right? Maybe you expected after he said he strengthens our heart that maybe you can say something so that he makes you glad. He makes you, causes you to rejoice. He, it results in joy. But Paul says it results in work and word. Or we could even take it instrumentally. It is by work and by word that this is going to be expressed. So what's the point? The point is this, brothers and sisters. We need one another practically. If we want to see the comfort of God in our lives, operating, working, if we want to actually see the manifestation of it, it will not happen without good deeds. It will not happen without good words. So what is that, what is that all about? Uh, well, as I can tell in Scripture, the combination of good work and word, okay, ergo kai lago, what that means is, or lago, uh, lago here, yes, uh, what that means is that it represents, in a sense, the totality of the person's obedience to God. Your walk, your worthy walk with the Lord, expressed in good deeds and expressed in the things that you say. That word, actually, that phrase that's used right here in the text is actually used uh, to, to speak about Christ. Luke 24 
that he had good work and good words. It's also used of Moses in Acts chapter 17. It's used of Moses as somebody that was mighty in word and deed. It's used of the Gentiles to speak about their fruitfulness, to speak about their productivity, their faith, the practical outworking of their faith through good words and good deeds. Romans chapter 15, verse 18. The phrase in all of its forms that it comes in ultimately speak of a person's overall manner of life, your conduct, your morality as it conforms to the will of God. Look, give, give you an example of this. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Because notice the comprehensive way in which Paul uses these words. Even though it's reversed in the order, it's the same meaning. In his treatment on the theology of the new man, the new creation, the creation, who we are in Christ as we are clothed with Jesus Christ, he uses this phrase. And he says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word and deed, that just basically means in all of your doing, in all your activity, in all your serving, in all your walking, in your manner of life, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks through Him to God the Father. In other words, what this means, brothers and sisters, is that the power of God here at work in us, it's not just a coping mechanism for our trials and our tears. It is an enablement of God. It is an empowerment of God for a deeper commitment to Him, a deeper walk, a stable conviction of faith, and the establishment of the believer's hope for obedience and our conformity to His will. God comforts us and strengthens us in order to stimulate us, to make us productive. And here's the key. You know where I'm going to go with this. In the church. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 to see the totality of this and how this strength. God doesn't just empower you for mental fortitude. God doesn't just empower you so that you can overcome, you know, the warfare in your mind. It's not just an existential, personal, intimate, sort of isolated thing. It has to spill out. I I think it's sort of a reciprocal thing. The more love, good deeds you do, the more good words, good works you speak, more the the, the good deeds and the good words, guess what? The more encouragement. (laughs) And that's the way that it's supposed to work. Look at what Hebrews makes this crystal clear. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then verse 25, crucial. Not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Had a really good good friend. Some of you might know him, so I won't mention his name. Not in fellowship right now. Tried to reach out to me on social media several times. Light conversation. Wants to just talk about stuff. Said, so where are you going to church? It's a question I asked you last year. Oh, blah, 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 blah. So you call me back when you're in church. Well, tried giving me a message here recently again. Uh Uh-uh, I'm not biting. Let's get the priorities straight. Don't try to have the Christian life without the foundation, right? Don't try to engage in some sort of, you know, quasi-fellowship when you are not in church because that's not Christianity. Christianity. 
You see that? Isn't it remarkable that in this very passage, Hebrews chapter 10, the next verse, 26, begins to take us down the path of apostasy. You're not characterized by this? Love, good deeds, stimulating one another, assembling together with a church? It's a good possibility you're on the path to apostasy. That's why it's so like, you know, man, it's like for me, it's like real, really, really a big issue. You know, where a person is in relationship to the church, a lot of times that tells me everything. And I start there. And so we should too, and it should just strengthen our resolve, and it should, it should really strengthen our, our view of the importance of the local church and our commitment to the local church. I mean, there's no other way I can say it. Whenever we talk about God strengthening us, God empowering us, we need to talk about the, la- the, the danger of that power fading away. Because this is not a one-time deal. We need encouragement all the time. If we take the word strengthen to mean the power of God, and we should, then the power of God in our lives can diminish, brothers and sisters. Don't think you're autonomous here, okay? We, we don't put it on autopilot. We never have sort of a, you know, uh, an adequate supply of God's power. No, no, no. It's something that we're constantly dependent on. And if we can be filled with it, then we can be emptied from it or it can be emptied out of us. It can diminish, it can weaken, it can fade away. And how does that fade away? It fades away when you are not speaking good words and you are not doing good deeds in the context of the local church. That's when we can, if we are not careful, if we take Hebrews here as a paradigm, this power can diminish by a lack of body life. So true, right? Unplug from the church and you will short-circuit the Spirit's power in your life. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Fail to stimulate one another and you will reveal that you have low voltage running through your walk. You get the drift? The dynamic of the church is a source of power. It encourages me. I mean, I know this from a pastoral perspective because, uh, you know, when people don't show up, it's kind of like a weakening feel. Maybe that's not right. You know, I think Spurgeon said, you know, you preach the same. The pews are full. The pews are empty. It doesn't matter. You preach the same. Okay, I got it. But I'm just human. When the church is full, I tell you what, I'm I'm ready to preach. You know what I mean? (laughs) Maybe that's wrong, but. I'm just telling you, I'm encouraged by your presence. And so when we have a men's group, a ladies' group, a home fellowship, whatever, and two, three people show up when it should be 20, we're just not as encouraged as we ought to be. And that's natural. That's normal. That's because God designed for the church to be reciprocal, to be an, organ, an organic body that sort of feeds on each other, derives strength and power from the ministry that it gets from each other. We are created by God in Christ for good works. And members of the church, church, what are we? We are conduits. We are conductors, conductors of the power of the grace of God. And so he says that we are given this good hope by grace. It's all rooted in the grace of God. I'll give you one last, section, one last passage. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. 
verse 8. Because this good work and this good word, this is why we're saved. This is how fundamental it is. We are saved for this exact reason. And so you need to ask yourself how little or how much of this is present in my life if, according to the Bible, this is the reason I was redeemed. Ephesians chapter 2, you know this verse. By grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourself is a gift of God, not a result of works. Catholics just can't get this verse, apparently. So that no one will boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? Now, now here's what's interesting. First, we have, did, did verse 10 just undo verse 8 and 9? Did it undo the whole dynamic of grace and works? Wait a minute. Verse 10 is telling us to walk in good works. It's almost saying like we got to have good works or else. No, it did not diminish. It did not undermine verse 8 and 9. First, we have to establish verse 10a before we get to verse 10b. (laughs) Verse 10a says we are his workmanship. You know, what I'm, you know what that means? It means the potter creates the clay. The potter molded the clay. In other words, he made you. He designed you. He's the architect of your spiritual life. He gave birth to you, in other words. So first, the whole idea is that you are a new creation. Once we establish that, that's on the basis of monergistic regeneration, if you want the technical term for it. Monergistic regeneration means the Holy Spirit activates faith in you <laughs> okay this is what this is how much of a calvinist i am it's your faith is the byproduct of the spirit's uh, regenerating work it is a gift what does that mean people can't yeah that's right what that means is people don't wake up in the morning on their to-do list they say believe in the gospel today Yeah, it's not a byproduct of human ingenuity. It is the byproduct of regeneration and a spiritual rebirth by the power and the work of the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And now that we are that new creation, we are created for good works. For good works. Be on a mission, brothers and sisters, for good works. Have vision in your life for good words. Make occasions for good words. You know what I'm saying? Have people over in the church. Have a family over for the church after you've prepared good words that you're going to impart to that person. You see what I'm saying? Ministry, in other words, and minister to one another through the words that you speak that will build up and will strengthen you. God prepared all of this for one reason so that we would walk in it. At some point, brothers and sisters, it becomes an issue of obedience. At some point, it becomes an issue of rebellion. If we're created for good works and for good words, to take the words here, the language of Thessalonians, then where is that in our life? And how much do we evidence that in our own life? Because it can very much imply whether or not we are comforted and strengthened by God. If those types of things are not flowing through us, it's so very practical. And what I love about it 
is that even in light of the terrible things that are coming, just look at the chapter, terrible things are coming. Antichrist is coming, apostasy is coming, a delusion is coming, a whole world that is completely blind and deceived by the devil is coming. And what's that going to look like? Well, probably a lot like what the world looks like right now. Let's just kind of turn it up a notch. Who knows? And what do we do in the face of all of that? I mean, what do we do? We run, like Isaiah, we run out naked into the wilderness? No. <laughs> you know, watch too many um, Left Behind movies. You might want to go up to the roof and wait. I mean, I don't know. No. Paul says what you do is you engage in good works and in good words with one another. That's what we do. In other words, we live the Christian life to the fullest knowing that we are in this sort of inner advent delay and this is what God's will is for our life. In the meanwhile, occupy. Be productive. Be found productive. When the master returns, be found productive. So when he returns, you're not ashamed. You're not ashamed. Remember the parable of, of the investment that was given to his, 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 uh, his servants and some of the people were, you know, they took the investment. And some, you know, they, they labored a little bit. Some others labored a lot. And one of them hid the investment and just prote- said, I'm just going to protect it and make sure nothing happens to it. And what that ended up translating into is inactivity. You did, you did nothing with what God gave you. And brothers and sisters, we have been given a lot. And so, therefore, much is going to be required of us. So I pray that, by God's grace, we will be very productive in this church Let me pray for that end. Father, I pray for us specifically that we would become zealous for good works. It's not duty-bound religion, but at the same time, we understand that in your word, good works must follow good faith. And that true saving faith is always productive and always fruitful. It always leads to a life of obedience, a life of ministry, a life of serving the Lord. And so, so Lord, we, we pray that as we serve you, that we would remember that by serving one another, we are serving you. Because to the least of those that we gave food and water and clothed, to whoever we do that for, to the least of these, we did it unto you. And so, Lord, help us to see one another as the object, the expression of our faithfulness and our servant, our servanthood, even to Christ, Lord. So, Father, we pray that we would have that perspective. We have a right view of the body, that the body deserves our commitment. The body deserves our sacrifice. The body deserves our edification if it's to be what it's supposed to be. Help us, Lord, to take ownership of that in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.